Welcome to Trapping Radio. This is your host, Clint Locklear, and we're going to continue on with what we've been doing for the last few weeks, uh, kind of getting back to the basics, not trying to figure out how to catch a thousand or something, but how to enjoy catching some. And uh, it may not sound as sexy, but hopefully there's something that I've learned over time that may be able to help you out and or maybe get you to think about something in a different way or maybe you just pick something up that maybe you hadn't thought about before you know that that's all this game is of trapping is you try stuff you fail stuff you learn stuff you succeed at stuff and you just keep going forward and when you're about 85 90 years old you kind of figure everything out and there's not a whole lot you can do with it that seems to be about the time that you actually start figuring stuff out in this game that's what it when I talk to older trappers, that's kind of where it is. Because if you think you know everything after five years of trapping, you're at that stage where you really don't know a whole lot and you don't know it yet. And then the more that you do it, the more you realize what I thought was important may not be so important. Maybe I'm pretty dumb at this, but I get lucky a lot. And that's where I've been for several years. I'll be honest with you. I just try stuff. I fail at stuff. I grow from it. I try something different. I build on that failure and I just keep moving forward. It, it's not like, you know, there's natural born trappers that just come out of the womb uh, because they got, you know, I don't know, like their parents gave them stem cells from Jim Bridger and they just know stuff. I mean, it, that's just not the way that it is. I think when you're younger in trapping, you get excited, you do a lot of research, you, you think you know what you're doing, you have some success, you believe that that's the reason for your success, you hang on to that a while, and then you start realizing there's a whole lot more to this. Uh, in between nature, uh, the animals, the habits, dealing with people, dealing, dealing with uh, rain and snow and different soil types, different states, different laws, dealing with competition. All of that over time just gets added up to the point where it seems like to somebody that you know what you're talking about. You know, and it, it, it's kind of, I'm probably going to screw this up, but when you look at anybody that people thinks knows what they're talking about, and I get really nervous when I hear people say that, you know, uh, certain things about me that's in a super positive light about my knowledge, because I realize it's really not. When two people are about equal, they just kind of think, yeah, what we kind of know about the same. And then someone comes up and does some things that are a little bit different, has a little bit more success. Usually the, the one person that's not having that success looks at that other person and kind of, you know, in a roundabout way, start thinking, well, they're, 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 they know something I don't know, or they're cheating or something weird's going on because, you know, we started at the same time, we should know the same things. And then all of a sudden there comes along people, and I'm not saying this just directly Mount B, but there's a lot of guys like me that kind of look around at the landscape and go, yeah, we all know this is true, but is it really? And they start playing around with the parameters 
inside of trapping and realize, no, it's, it's, it's not what is dogmatic sometimes as we want to think it is. And it seems like those people are light years ahead just because they've kind of opened their mind up. But really, those people are also just figuring things out as you go along. I've trapped with some crazy good people in my life. Highly experienced. Just highly productive people. And when you're with someone day in and day out, you realize they're no different than you are, except they're working problems maybe a little bit faster than you because they have uh, some experience you don't have. But they're just figuring things out on a set-by-set -set basis, on location-by-location -location basis. They're figuring it out as they go. Now, from someone that's from a long distance, reads about them in a magazine, watches some videos and stuff like that. It seems like, holy cow, they're like on a different level. And if you're with them every day, you realize, no, they're not on a different level. They're just working out the problems as they see them. And what I've seen a lot with students, schools, just being around other trappers, is a lot of guys have not changed in so long in the way that they think because it's almost like it's a devaluation of their worth if they realize maybe what I've done for the last 5, 10, 15 years is not really the best way to go about this and I'm going to have to admit that I'm wrong. The guys that seem like they're way ahead, they have no problem admitting they're wrong. Because guys, I can tell you, I am wrong all the time. I just learn from it. And I think that's what the actual, you know, when you break down all the, the coolness about seeing coyotes jump in traps and floating beaver and catching a bunch of raccoons really, really quick or loading a boat with muskrats and seeing a bunch of spotted up cats, you know, and you get all excited. All that's like the the surf, the, the kind of like the shell of trapping, in my opinion. What really is trapping? It's figuring out problems on a day-to-day -day basis and making the best decision that you can based off the information that you have to be successful. And if you're going about trapping that way, I promise you, you're not doing the same thing today that you were five years ago. Because you should have more information up to this point to be able to make better decisions. But it always boils back to the basics. Always. If you were to go and spend the money to go to somewhere like Thunder Ranch with Clint Smith, one of the probably highest, I don't know if ranked is the right word, um, appreciated, a famous, tactical gun teacher there is. And you go watch his videos, 
the majority of what he does is basic. It's repetition. You're not worried about being the fastest. You're worried about being the most consistent. I can tell you from sports, uh, and I've talked about this uh, before, but I, I learned this lesson really early on in life. When I was, I guess, in the fourth or fifth grade, we I went to a, a church school, Grace Baptist Church. I guess church school is what we call it. I don't really know, Grace Baptist School. Um, and pretty much it was just the church deciding that they wanted to have a school and the moms taught. But next to that was a, a, a boys club that had a gym. You know, they had the, the baseball fields and the football fields and all that. And they had a gym and I don't know. I don't remember what else they had because I pretty much just went in the gym. And at our little school, we had a little league that we were in and that we would play softball and basketball. So I like, I've always liked training and I've taken that into trapping. And I went over there and I was practicing basketball and practicing basketball and practicing basketball because it wasn't so much you had to be a senior to be on the varsity. You just had to be good enough to play because there wasn't a whole lot of kids to choose from. And I'd much rather play on varsity than I would on junior varsity. So I practiced and practiced and practiced, just like trapping. And there was some black guys that just kind of took me under their wing, and they started calling me Larry Bird. And I didn't even know who that was at the time. And these were, in my mind's eye, 18, 19, 20, and 25-year-old black guys that I would play with every day. And they showed no mercy. But when I did some things right, they also were very positive. And they, they are always talking about basics. And as far as I know, none of them played for a school or a league or anything like that. Well, then I got up into high school. And when I went to Meigs County here in Tennessee, we went to state a couple of years. I'd coach pole for a coach. And basics was beat into our brain. So when we played other teams that didn't have the basics down, we destroyed them. They may have more talent, but we would win. And then my senior year, I got a scholarship at Glenwood High School in Alabama to play sports. And that coach was more of a basketball coach than he was a football coach. But he was really, really good at what he did. And aggression in basics it was like the first three weeks of practice we learned discipline that's when i learned how important this was because i used to go around to all the places like macon and columbus and phoenix city and lagrange and i'd go to these gyms and i would play basketball and hustle black people in basketball i mean like a pool shark I'm 6'2", 270 pounds, white guy, the only white guy usually in the gym. And I learned that I could play with anybody as long as I had the basics. If I had that down, I could control the ball, I could play defense, I could block out and get rebounds. I didn't overcommit 
you know, I didn't try to get too fancy. I could continuously play with about anybody at that point. And I was pretty good at basketball. I'm not going to lie. But the only way that I, that I could compete with a lot of these older black guys that I would actually hustle for money is they had, they could jump higher. They were faster. They could make crazy shots. I would never even come up with a lot of them could dunk just like nothing, but in the game, one that came down to for the money, if I stayed disciplined and with the basics, most of the time I would end up walking out of there with their money. And let me tell you, there were some hairy situations from doing that. Because if you want to infuriate a bunch of high testosterone, undisciplined people going to the gym of a different skin color and end up showing them that they're not near as good as they think they are. But that basics and discipline is what allowed me to do that. So even though when I do this podcast, because we're up to like, I think, 462 episodes after this one. The basics is still as important, no matter how talented, no matter how much experience that you have as a trapper. It boils down to that day in and day out. Discipline and the basics wins the game. So that's the reason I think it's a good time to talk about the basic stuff that we've been talking about for the simple fact that I have a tendency due to my personality that, yeah, this is how you catch a beaver, but let's get insane with this and go catch a thousand. How do we work out all the logistics and the daily routines and how are we going to be able to shave seconds off a set? I get, I mean, I get, I'm wound up just talking about that right now. But without all that basic stuff, all of that what seems more advanced stuff doesn't work. So before we get into today's show, I want to thank our sponsors. We have hands down people you can trust, hands down people that are going to take care of you as customers, hands down they have good prices, they ship out when they say they're going to, and they're not going to play games with you. You don't have to worry about... You, you put an order in online and you got to wait six weeks to get a product unless something's just crazy going on. Most everybody that I deal with that's a sponsor ships out every day. Every day. Or they have somebody that ships out every day. First is F&T Fur Harvesters, everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. And they have everything. Next is Oki Cable and Trap out of Oklahoma. Full supply line. A lot of times he's got meat and glands for sale. Some most years he buys fur. Jeb's just a really good guy. Then we have Dunlap Lures, which uh, Jeff's a friend of mine. He's got uh, all kind of really high production style lures and baits that you can trust in. You can believe in. You can go use and catch fur with. And then we have Funky Trap Tags and Supplies, which has a full trap and supply. They, they're into more, also, not more, but they're probably 90% trapping. And then they have some stuff for 
deer hunting and hogs and bears and snares and uh, fishing stuff. You know, it's 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 a well-rounded out uh, operation that they have there for outdoorsmen, which is who listens to a podcast like this. Funky Trap Tags and Supplies. So that's our sponsors, guy. They support me so I can continue to put this show out. So if you like the show, I think it's just the right thing to do is to give them a shot with your business. We talked about muskrats last week, and I got tickled because one of the threads from the school that me and Jeff put on, which will be this September, uh, they're talking about catching this, that, and the other, and one of them kind of said it was funny listening to me talk about rats. And I don't know if it was funny because I said something was funny or because that's just not really my expertise, which I tried to make extremely clear last week. But tonight we're going to talk about something I know a little bit about, and that's beaver. And I'll be honest with you, I've had a a love-hate relationship with beaver for, I don't know, 20 years. Beaver is a weird thing to go after. You're not going to find anything else that you're going to go after on scale that is going to flat wear you out. Everything you do is big and heavy. Dragging out beaver, dragging out multiple beavers is not light. Getting them up the banks is not light. Playing in the swamps and fighting the muck and trying not to fall over and fall in beaver runs, it's just exhausting. Now, sure, there's places you go to where it's just like super easy and fun. You walk out on a dam off a road and you put a body grip in there and it's just done. But that's not really all of just what beaver trapping is. And when I used to do pretty much straight beaver work professionally for probably seven years, I'll be honest, guys. It was kind of like, oh my gosh, another beaver. And in the summertime, you're dealing with turtles, snakes, and, uh, you know, rotten beaver. And oh, I mean, it, it can, it, it'll wear you down if you do, because I was doing it 10 months out of the year. 10 months, as hard as I could go. I caught up to 1,104 beaver in a single year. By no means, I'm sure that is not a record. But I probably averaged for probably seven or eight years between 500 and 700 beaver a year. Plus, you go to put most of those beaver up, and now you're right back into everything is harder. You know, you consider a muskrat to a beaver and it's not even in the same world as what it's like to put those things up. The carcasses are heavy. The fat buckets are heavy. You're dealing with the big, the you know, the big stretchers and the plywood and everything else. And if you do beaver trapping a lot, it will wear you down. And that's what happened to me when I did that. Now, my way of handling that where it didn't become so boring. And you may be thinking, how could beaver trapping be boring? 
Do it every day for five or six years, 10 months out of the year from daylight till dark, pretty much six days a week. It's like anything else. It, it just got to the point where it lost its luster. Before I did that, I absolutely loved beaver trapping. About halfway through that, it was a job. A job job. And then I got out of that and I got into more of the predator stuff. And now, I thoroughly enjoy beaver trapping again. I've got to right now. I just got a call this morning from a lady that's on the lakes having beaver problems or coming up and eating stuff. And uh, I'm going to go help her out, I'm sure. And then there's some road stuff I've got going on, some swamps I'm going to. And, and I'm trapping now beaver because I need it for my business, for caster meat, stuff like that. And that's kind of what I'm concentrating on right now. Because that's what I need to do, even though that may not be what I want to do. That's what I need to do. But I'm enjoying it so much more than I did back when I was doing it full time. And it's, it, it, it's, it's weird how that works. It, it's almost like maybe to stay sane as a trapper and not get burnt out, maybe it's not a bad idea to every couple of years switch up critters for a season just to totally get away from something else. So you can come back into it fresh, you can come back into it with open eyes, and it'll, I just think it'll be more fun. So I, the beaver trapping now, I thoroughly enjoy. I've also learned how to be a better lazy beaver trapper, which makes it more enjoyable. But the basics are still the same. I wanna start with body grips. Body grips is how most people, I would say, go out and catch beaver. It's a, to understand a body grip, understand what it actually is. It is a mechanical snare that kills the animal. That's what a body grip is. So if you, if you always keep in your mind, what does a snare do? How does a snare work? When a beaver goes through the snare and the loop closes on him, that's how you catch the beaver. And with a, with a body grip, it doesn't work till they go through it. So it's just a mechanical snare. It's a, it's a mechanical device. Now we can get into the weeds on modifications, on what is the best body grip, what is the, you know, what are the things that I look at? And I'm not going to go very deep into this, but I do want to have a few things for you to think about. One, I want the trap, if possible, to have completely closing jaws, like a Bilal's or a Savage or the, the Magnums from Bridger. And you can put uh, bars and modify dukes and stuff like that to get them to be this way which is fine i've got i still use traps that i've modified to be this way but when i look at body grips the two main things that i look at does it completely close 
when it's fired. And what I mean by that is like a standard Duke, which I have, I bet I've got 300 of them and I would still use them and they have their place. But you don't hold that many beaver by the tail and you don't realize that till you get a completely closing body grip trap like a Blahls or a Savage or Bridger. So when those springs fire, it does close, but then there's a, a gap that's just naturally occurring by the way the springs are and the jaws are built that doesn't have enough tension to hold beaver by the tail. So when you start using it, you realize, holy crap, how many beaver have I not caught over the years because they kind of got through the triggers which they do, and then they fire it with their tail and it slaps their tail, but they can pull out. See, to me, having a trap that, that holds what you're catching is very basic. I mean, that should be one of the most basic things in the world. Now, you got a beaver and a, and a duke, and I'm not picking on dukes because I've caught thousands of beaver with dukes. And it fires when you want it to. It catches them around the head or it suitcases them and they're dead. Awesome. Awesome job. But then when it closes on the tail, you now have a beaver or an otter that you would not have had. Now you put the energy into making that set. Now you don't know how the beaver's going to react to the next set because you just smacked the crap out of it. And I think some beavers just don't pay attention. And some beavers are nervous wrecked from that point on. They're individuals. The other big concern with me is the triggers on body grips. Now they don't have to be manuf manufactured or modified to the point where they have to be perfect. I mean, it's kind of like when, when I first went in the military and we had to uh, go to the range with actually the World War One and World War II 45 Colts, and it, and it sounded more like a cymbal going off because everything was so loose. And you're lucky to hit a target at 10 feet because the barrel's pointing in every which direction depending on how it's just flopped into the, the groove there. So the sights and the barrel aren't even aiming at the same thing anymore that's really loose and in a gunfight it could be a problem then you get something like a Kimber 45 that is machine to perfection absolute perfection and then you got Glocks that are somewhere in the middle of both of those examples but you've got a Kimber on one side in a in a worn-out military been in service for 70 years, 45 Colt, that's just flopping all over the place. Well, that's a huge difference because like with, when, you, when you go from the, the worn out 45 to the Kimber and you have decent control on a range, well now you're shooting a 45 almost like a rifle within decent range. I mean, where you point it, it hits. Totally different world. But... It's 
the Kimber is manufactured to perfection to a point that no sane person would ever carry a Kimber until they run at a minimum 500 rounds through the gun to loosen it up enough to where it doesn't jam. So when you buy a new Kimber, you do not put that on your holster and go out to protect your family until you run 500 bullets through it. And you're gonna see the first couple of hundred, you're gonna have several jams on that very expensive pistol. As you shoot more, things kind of loosen up enough to where it becomes very consistent. So you've got the 45, the real floppy triggers that come on some body grips. And you got the Kimber, which is like machine to perfection. But it, it's almost too perfect until you, you get some use on it. And there's triggers just like that on the market. There used to be a trigger you could buy, and you might be able to buy them today. It's called Species Specific. It was a, a, a bolt-on that had four screws, and you could manipulate that thing to be a Kimber. So when, the, when any movement at all on those triggers, that trap fires. I've modified with rod and square, uh, uh, square stock, so when it moves at all, it fires. There's probably some videos on my YouTube channel, Wolfer Nation. You can go find it. Um, perfection. But if that's off a little bit, train wreck. So perfection's not always best. But when it comes to triggers of a body grip, you definitely want to have, when the trigger starts moving, it's going to throw that jaw off the dog and fire the trap. And if you look at a lot of traps, when you take them out of the box, you'll have one direction that fires really quick and smooth. And a lot of times, if you push the trigger the other way, you can move that trigger five to six to eight inches before it turns loose of the jaw, which is where a lot of the issue comes with animals making it through traps and then you have to catch them by the tail with a completely closing jaw. Because if they go in the right way, they're almost through it before the thing goes off. And if they manipulate through a body grip, especially if it's in shallow water, gently, which a lot of beaver will do, you'll come up and the trigger will be laying like on, farther down than a 45 degree angle and the trap's not even fired off. And I can tell you from having that happen several times with a certain year of Bilal's, that probably cost me an extra $3,000 that year on Otter. So I, I want to be, the two main things I'm looking at is I want the jaws to close and I want the trigger to work fairly proficient. Not perfection, but not sloppy sloppy either. So those are the two things. Besides that, I really don't care. I mean, the perfect trap to me is either gonna be closing or with a breaker bar, like you can see on the, the Minnesota 12 by 16. 
you can build that on any body grip and have a even a, a stronger killing trap than a Bilal's. The leverage when you do that to that is unbelievable with the force it hits an animal. To the point where even otter and beaver a lot of times on something like a KB stand where the trap's not even connected anymore, it looks like you killed the beaver and laid it back down on the stand. That's how hard that trap hits with the killer bars. But it's not necessary. Now I'm talking about these more expensive traps. And I said I probably have 300 Duke 330s. And there's a reason for that, guys. As a, a Duke or some other trap like that that's a lot less expensive and you're, you're running road lines and you have theft problems and stuff like that, it's easier to swallow when someone steals a Duke or a dozen Dukes than it is when they steal a dozen Bilal's because those traps now are getting crazy, crazy expensive. So I have like what I consider the good traps and the more disposable traps when I look at body grips for beaver. And it's, it's not the beaver that's choosing which one I use, it's people that's choosing which one I use. What I think the, the issue is going to be with people. Like if I go run a river line and it's populated like the lake that I live on, the way the fishermen fish, you're just gonna have a certain percentage of them that will not be able to leave that trap alone because they've never seen one or they've seen one years ago or they saw it in a magazine or on a show. And now they're looking at it and there's nobody around and this problem person probably would never steal anything else in life, but he just can't stand it. And they gotta go screw with it. And they're like, well, someone must have left this out here last year. They will find some way of justifying taking that trap home. They'll never use it, but they'll have a story. So that's the traps. How we set up our traps for basics is, in my mind, three ways. You've got the cheaper at the beginning way, you've got uh, a little more expensive version as far as anchoring, and then you have what I consider the Cadillac way of anchoring. So the cheapest way, and what most people do, and what I did for years, is I would take, uh, see 14 gauge wire that I'd buy from Trap and Supply House and I would have a reel and I'd run off wire and I would just tie it off to the ring and then I would tie it off to a tree or a root or whatever I could find or a stake or whatever it was. And that works 90% of the time just fine. When we started getting a bunch of otter in Tennessee I was having Otter actually pull the 14 gauge wire in half, totally in half. You could see that it was stretched, the wire was stretched. Not broke, not twisted, but stretched. And if you're running 
you know, eight feet of wire, the chance of some, of some animal twisting that up and breaking it, it's pretty low. And I used a lot of this wire because when I was in, uh, in Marion County and Sequatchie County and in those counties, we had floods in the winter that were just horrendous and they would just pop up out of nowhere. I mean, it would rain 50 miles away and we get six foot water flush. So I was using the wire a lot of times just to be able to get my equipment back. So what I would do is I would run sometimes 30 feet of wire to the side of the creek, even if the trap was on the other side of the creek, as high as I could reach it on a tree so if I had to go in with chest waders, I could find the wire on the tree and then pull it back through the water and get it. If I short staked it, I had to wait till the water went down, which could be a couple of weeks from now. And depending on what happened and when the flood comes, you may, you may be, you know, got 30, 40 rotten beaver by the time you get back. Not that you can't get there and look at it, but you physically can't get the trap because it could be under six, seven, eight foot of water. The downside to that is, is when the big trees come down the creeks and it hooks on the trap, it's gonna break the wire. I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of traps I lost when I was doing beaver work all the time. And it was due to floods. So that was my redneck way of at least be able to get most of my traps back as soon as it started flooding, if I couldn't even cross the creek anymore, because what used to be chest wader deep now is, you know, deep end of a swimming pool deep. And I would tie that up high. Then I moved into extension cables, which is a good option because an otter is not going to break it. Um, if you have extra, it's not going to hurt anything. And it's fairly cheap if you make your own extensions. You know, if you've never done that before, uh, you know, buy 500 feet of cable and a bunch of double ferrules and you can just build a bunch of them in an afternoon and you're good to go pretty much all year. You can use a hammer and an anvil or anvil and, you know, a hammer and something steel like a railroad tie plate or something, you're good to go. The problem that I had with the extension cables back when I was using a lot of them, which I can get away from now because I understand a little bit better, is it used to aggravate me to have to pull one out, unravel it. Please keep in mind what my mindset was at the time. It was hair on fire every day. So just the idea of me having to unravel an extension cable, hook it up with clips, find something to tie it off to. When I come back and pull the trap, I had to take the time to wind it back up. Those go in the back of the truck. By the end of the day, you got triggers that get in the middle of them, stakes, hammers, whatever else. And all of a sudden, five or six of them come loose. And you've got 60 feet of cable wrapped around everything in your truck. And this cussing fest, this starts when you're trying to get all this untangled. That's what bothered me about extension cables.
Well, when order prices became really high, I had to figure out a way to be able to use body grips. I was doing a lot of road trapping and I had to figure out the fastest way to use the traps. And the best, what I consider the Cadillac way of body grips is four to six foot of chain with a T-bar and the chain is permanently attached to the spring of the trap. So what I would do is I would run the chain through the eye of the side of the body grip, come back down and use a uh, J-hook with a swivel, not that the swivel really did anything, and then I would hook that back into the chain so it was loose and it could move around on the eye. And then on the very end of that, I would put a J-hook in a swivel that I could run a T-bar down through and I was using uh, 3 8 inch T-bars depending on where I was at, anywhere from two to four feet. That is the fastest, most less aggravating way to use body grips that I have ever found. And there may be somebody that's come up with something better than that. But for me, that's the ticket because I could run that chain around it. Uh, some of them, if I knew that I was going to be running a whole bunch, I would get these little bitty zip ties. And I'm talking those little bitty zip ties. They're only like five inches long and they're 16th of an inch wide. They're easy to break, but it's enough to hold the chain. And I could roll that chain up around the spring and zip tie that bad boy on there. And when I would get to the, the set, I could just break that loose. I wouldn't have all the tanglements, the chain running through traps and all that. And that worked. And I could just put the T-bar down through the side. I could roll fast. I didn't have to look for trees. I didn't have to look for roots. I didn't have to do anything. It was just like an integrated system. So that's how I hooked the traps up. Well, to go back to the extension cables, because I forgot to tell you, after running so many snares in Texas, I finally figured out that as long as you have a, a dedicated bucket, it could be a one gallon bucket, a two gallon, a five gallon, whatever it is, the amount of, of extension cables you have, when you roll those up, you drop them in the bucket. That way it's never coming apart and getting in the way of everything. And when they get really kinked where they don't want to roll up, don't be a cheap ass and just go ahead and, and use them for something else or throw them away. The aggravation is not worth it. So the trigger, the jaws closing in the way that I hooked it up. Besides that, I really can't think of anything to get excited about body grips. I will say that for years, I was highly dedicated to camouflaging the body grips with paint. So I would dip them and then I would take four or five different colors of OD green, uh, a, a, a very dull brown, some grays, and I would just hit them in different places to break out the way the trap looked. For me, it gave me confidence because they were really hard to see.
a black trap sitting on a creek bank is like a neon sign for a thief. And I believe a black trap with an animal that sees in black and white as a beaver does or shades of gray, that black is like fluorescent orange to you and me. So I've never liked the idea of the black trap. But when I camouflaged them, they, they really disappeared a lot. And theft went way down because people just didn't notice them. The other lesson that I learned is respecting the beaver when it came to the trap itself. And what do I mean by this? I still see majority of people when I see pictures of, of beaver sets where they take a black trap and if it's a slide, they just put the thing where it's half in, half out of the water or you know, you know, partly in the water depending on your state laws. And they'll have it on a stand or they'll run a couple of sticks down through the springs and it looks like such a foreign object on the side of the creek. To me, and this is a personal opinion guys, that is not respecting the beaver. That's not respecting, let's see how can I say this, the craft. But if you take a couple of grass clumps or some river cane, which is my favorite, or in North Carolina, you have like the rhododendrons, whatever the, the, that is that grows along the creek banks there that's green all, all year. Something to take away the shape of that trap and let it blend into the environment. I know your catch will go up because mine did. And I've been with other people that started the trip, even with uh, a beaver and otter. Ed Blue, we went to Mississippi, uh, and I've talked about this before, Sharkey County, and we were slamming otter. We're talking, if we didn't have four to six a day, it was a bad day. Big, beautiful, pale otters. And when we first started, Ed didn't respect the animals. Now, we're trying not to catch beaver because we're after otter, but we still averaged ungodly amount of beaver a day, otter trapping. And he came from the older school of it didn't matter. And when he was down in Georgia, and he came across a beaver trail or an otter trail, his way of setting them was he'd have these four foot stands, which are awesome. He would put the trap in there and it didn't matter to him if the grass was cut like a um, golf course and he would slam that trap in that trail and walk off. And he caught just enough animals doing this 
that he thought that that's all that mattered when it came to camouflaging a body grip trap. His, all his stuff was painted black. I'm over there, my stuff is tiger striped. I'm taking a few extra, you know, like an extra minute. I'm breaking up the outline of the trap with vegetation or river cane or something like that. Weeds. I'm bringing it over the top where it cuts off the corners. So it looks just like a, tra like a trail and there's just one stick that goes across the top. I'd even go so far if we were sitting in states where we sat on dry land, which Louisiana, Mississippi, you're more than uh, legal to do. I couldn't even just leave the bottom jaws exposed because to me, that's not respecting the craft. And I would actually take leaves or kick sand over if it wasn't going to be freezing. I would do something to completely hide the bottom of that trap. So the only thing that a beaver would see or an otter when they came up to go up a trail is natural with one straight bar across the top. I wanted the triggers coming off the bottom because I could hide those better than having the whole trigger mechanism right there in their face. And when we went out and started, my catch and his catch weren't close. I mean, it was probably a 20, 80% difference. But in his mind, it didn't matter because in his past, he's caught beaver and otter in open fields with short grass with a four foot stand in a black trap. But it didn't, after about a week, it gets kind of embarrassing. When two guys, because we're going to, trust me, I started busting his balls after like hour one. And he busted my balls back because I was making it uh, too complicated. It's not necessary. He's been up in Maine. That's how he saw people up there, beaver and otter trapping. And he's caught them that way. And it, it just doesn't matter. You're, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Okay. We go to check. Like I said, it was probably 80% Clint, 20% Ed. Next day, very similar. Next day, very similar. After like day five, I kind of notice as he's putting his sets in, he's covering up the bottom jaws. He's putting a little bit just to break it out. A little bit. Not what I'm doing. All of a sudden, his catch goes up. Camouflages more, his catch goes up. Camouflages more, his catch goes up. By the end of that trip, we're catching about equal. What was the difference? I was respecting the craft, and I was respecting the animal, and I was trying to make it as natural as possible. And we were both doing that we both caught about the same amount of fur. So yes, 
I think it's important. I know there's going to be guys that listen to this show that's going to go, that is ridiculous. I caught 100 beavers last year, and I didn't camouflage nothing. Well, rock on, brother, because I guarantee you, if you start taking the time to camouflage that trap a little bit better, you're probably going to jump to 200, and you're not really doing anything different. See, to me, that's a basic tendency of trapping is you respect the animal, you respect the craft, and you make things look as natural as possible. We talk about that all the time with coyotes. Over the years, I think that way about everything. And the reason is because it makes a difference. Now, I didn't know I was going to be talking this much about traps, but I do want to talk about a few more things, I guess, before we actually get into Catching Beaver, I guess, in two weeks. Uh, Chip's doing a show next week. Um, you need to understand some habits about beaver when it comes to water. Because it'll make a huge difference in what you see when you're out setting them. If you're in a pond, it's pretty much how most trappers think it is. They go straight up to the trail and they, they get caught. If you have current guys, like on a creek, I want you to think about if you've ever seen a duck come towards the bank of something in current. Or if you've ever been in a canoe or a kayak and you need to have a takeout point. You don't see any of those things in current dead reckon into where they want to go. Because physics says it won't work out the way that you want it to. Because the current is going to push you off your mark. So what does a duck do or what does somebody in a kayak do? They kind of go downstream and they head upstream, depending on the amount of current is how uh, exaggerated this is, and they, they go up to where they want to go. So they're coming into the bank a lot of times a little more sideways than trappers want to think. They want to think, no matter what the current is, that if a beaver is going to go up a slide, it's a dead reckoning from like the middle of the creek and going over. And that is not how it works because the animals don't do that. And this has a lot of implications on where the trap goes and what you're going to see using lure. If you've got current from a lure maker, please listen to me on this. If you don't believe me, go to a creek and start a little fire next to the creek with current. And then I want you to go to a pond and I want you to set a fire, just a small one, enough to get some smoke, on a pond or a lake or a big slow river. And you're going to see the smoke does two drastically different things. 
when that current is coming up next to that bank, it takes the air with it. That's why you see fog going down with the current. It's not going up against current, it's going down with the current. And if you set a fire on the side of a creek with current, you're going to see the smoke go out towards the water and start following the bank. It doesn't spread out like it does on a pond, a lake, or something with no current. So when you're making sets, depending on what your laws are in your state, you need to understand how the beaver is going to come up to that. Like in Louisiana, it doesn't matter. Because I can pull up on any body of water, regardless of what the current is, and I can set the trap three foot up on the bank, camouflage it in, stake it off, and go about my business. Whatever happens with the way that beaver is going to come up to that slide, current or no, no current, is irrelevant because by the time he's in the slide, he's going to be straightened back out. But what about you guys that has to have the trap completely under the water? Do you think you might want to look at some different, maybe adjusting that trap with that current? See, that's just basics. Understanding how the animal is going to come up and where the trap goes. Now, if the beaver is on the bank, which he will do a lot, which I'm getting ready to explain, and come off of the slide, he's going to go straight down the slide. So if you're, if you're, if you got a body grip trap, with a dive pole and you got to have your trap completely underwater and he comes off the slide he's just going to hit the water go on a dive pole and get caught but if he's coming up to the slide from the water his body position can be very different where the water meets the land now your lure also is going to cause issues when it comes to this. And there's, there's a couple of ways to think about this. If you, if you actually take the time to set a little bitty leaf fire and watch what it does on current, like I said, you're going to see it as it spreads out over the water in the current, it's going to flow down with the water. So where's the beaver going to come across the lure? not in front of the slide it's going to be downstream of the slide because that's the way if the smoke's going to do it that's the way the smell's going to do it too just because it's a lure doesn't mean that it can fight physics in air molecules and how stuff is flowing so a lot of times what you have with current is you can A, put a little bit of lure right on the slide and then go two or three feet upstream and put more lure, which works. So when the beaver's coming in contact with the odor, it's right in front of the slide. Or you have to be prepared that when the beaver actually comes in contact with the lure, He's going to be three, four, five feet downstream smelling it because that's where it is. 
and you see a lot of beaver that will crawl up a bank where there is no slide to try to find that lure because that's where they're smelling the lure at. Now you can give them an option to do that and catch them when they come back down the slide, which is what happens most of the time because most people set it like their current doesn't matter. You can actually, on, on, on decent current with a higher bank, you can actually put your body grip up next to the bank with lure on the high bank, and as the beaver comes up to smell the lure, he's got to go through the trap. My point is, a basic thing about beaver is understanding how and where they're gonna smell the lure and how and where they're gonna come in contact with the bank from the water. Because regardless, if you're using a foothold and you stick it on the right-hand side and the creek's going to the left, the beaver may not even get over your trap because he's hugging the slide on the left-hand side because the water's flowing that way. Same thing with a body grip trap. I want to repeat that. If, if you're standing in the water and you're looking at a slide and the water's hitting your right leg and going downstream to your left and you put a foothold on the right-hand side and you offset it to the right-hand side and the beaver has to come in with his body on an angle because of the current, he may not even get on top of your trap even though you've got it at the base of the slide. Body grip is no different. Now, if you're in a swamp or a lake or a pond, it's not important. You can go to Jeff, and I don't know if he's ever done this, and if he listens to this or Sarah does, a good video that he could do because he's always playing with smoke bombs is to go to one of his swamps and set that thing off right off next to the swamp and watch how it'll go with the wind, of course, and it'll spread out. But if he does it on the creeks that have current, you're going to see a totally different thing. So the lure is one thing and the animal body position is another thing. To me, this is very basic stuff for beaver that you as a trapper need to understand. So I hope this has at least got some guys thinking when it comes to your traps. Do you want to camouflage them? Is it important? What type of trap that you want to get or modify? What are the positives and negatives on how you're going to anchor that trap? And what is the type of water that you're trapping on because it makes a big difference? See, those are basics. And basics is what wins the game.